will come speak to us. I, I've got to share one brief story. Um, some of you may or may not know, but we know Dr. Chapel best uh, when Ada and I were seminary students at Covenant Theological Seminary. Dr. Chapel was both president of the seminary and, and also head of the homiletics department. I, yes. So, um, and I just want to share this story of the first time I actually had a conversation with Dr. Chapel. Um, it was my first year of seminary. Um, I had just decided to go to St. Louis and, and, and go to seminary, and to do so, I needed a, a job, so I, I was able to get a job working as a janitor for the seminary. And, uh, you know, they, they were able to size up talent really quickly and said, this is where you need to be. Um, part of that job uh, entailed uh, driving a, a John Deere Gator, which has got a flatbed in the back where I would drive around the buildings and pick up trash, um, take it to its proper place. Um, and as we had started seminary, started school that week, it was leading up to the weekend of Labor Day. And I had been in a conversation with my mom wanting to know if I was going to come back to Tennessee for Labor Day weekend because that was an important family time for us. Um, and, you know, I'd been gone all summer and maybe I would come home and get to visit. It was a seven-hour drive. And as I'm on the phone with her, I'm just so I don't know. I've got to look at my schedule. And is it worth, you know, driving seven hours and turning around and coming right back? Of course, I didn't say that to her, but this is what I'm thinking. And um, I knew, though, as I looked at my schedule, the only class that would sort of interfere with staying an extra couple days was my preparation and delivery of, of, of sermons, uh, which was our first, you know, entry-level homiletics course taught by Dr. Chapel in the chapel, ser- chapel room, big classroom. And, well, I didn't think much about it. I just went on with the rest of my day. The next day, I, I'm, I'm doing my job. Classes have ended. I've, I've driven the, the John Deere Gator down to the admin building, and I'm getting my, my trash put away. And um, out walks Dr. Chapel, suit and all, and he asked me if I could give him a ride to his house. And I didn't even know he, I mean, he knew my name. I didn't even know, he would know, why would he know who I am? And, uh, you know, in that situation, you're trying to figure out what to do, and you're a janitor, and here's the president of the seminary, and sure, I'll give you a ride. Um, nervous for sure, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And as we began to drive to his house, I have no idea uh, what was said. I, I know that he asked me a few questions about my life, and I just remember thinking, don't say anything stupid, don't say anything stupid. Uh, this is the president of your seminary. Um, well, um, as we get there, I drop him off at his house, and all is going well. If I just get in the cart and drive back to my job, I'm, I'm good, but I don't do that. I stop. And I turn back, and I say, hey, Dr. Chapel, uh, how many of your classes am I allowed to miss this year? In other words, how many of your classes can I miss before it affects my grade? Yeah. Um, the look on his face was the only look that someone who authored the book Holiness by Grace could give. And he just smiled and he said, I think three, which is true. It was a three-hour credit class and you can miss one class per hour. And um, I said, okay, thank you, Dr. Chapel." And got in the gator and drove away. Called my mom and told her I'll be there. Now, that was it in this story. But uh, I thought to myself, what did I just say? So, so, so for the youngsters out there thinking about going to college or any kind of grad work, um, word of advice, don't make your first question to the president of your institution or whatever. How many of your classes can I miss? Not a good start. Well, we're delighted to have Dr. Chapel with, with us this morning and his wife Kathy as well. Um, 
Dr. Chapel has been in ministry for many, many years, uh, beginning uh, pastoring in 1976 Woodburn Presbyterian Church in Woodburn, Illinois, and then also uh, Bethel Reformed Presbyterian Church in 1978. In 85, he moved to St. Louis to uh, teach homiletics at Covenant Theological Seminary, and then became dean of faculty between 87 and 94, and then in 94 became the president of the seminary until 2012. Um, and then from 2012 to 2013, he served as um, chancellor of the seminary. And then after that, went on to pastor Grace Presbyterian Church in Peoria, Illinois. And then in 2021, he was, uh, took the job of stated clerk of our denomination. And that's what he does for us uh, at this time. Uh, Brian is the fourth stated clerk of the 49-year existence of the Presbyterian Church in America. And apart from all that, Dr. Chapel has a deep, deep love for Christ and an incredible gift of expositing and communicating the scriptures to generations of future teachers, future leaders in the church, future laymen and women, and he's a gift to the church. We're so grateful to have him with us. Dr. Chapel. the pulpit is yours. Thank you, Ryan. And everyone should know that whenever you start and you say, I have a story about Dr. Chapel," you kind of go, oh no, where is this going? <laughs> I'm glad it was about you, <laughs> and, uh, and with a very sweet spirit. Thank you so much. No, nothing is a greater joy than to go to a place where uh, those that uh, the Lord has used me somewhat to uh, see you and Ada serving the Lord where he has called you and your people supporting you, and I praise God for you and the work that you're doing. Uh, I'm gonna ask that all of you look at Acts 13 with me this day as you think about the mission emphasis of this Sunday, Acts 13, as we'll consider the first 12 verses there. Let me prepare you just by making the observation that they must have cheered when the risen Lord appeared to his disciples and said to them, after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And they must have thought, wow, we are going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then somebody must have thought, now how are we going to do that? How in the world are we, with our Savior departing, this little band of fishermen and tax collectors, how are we going to be the witnesses of Christ to the uttermost parts of the earth? What's that going to look like? It's going to look like Acts 13. Let's start reading through verse 12. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. 
Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Today, this very day, there will be more Christians worshiping Jesus in China than in the United States. Much smaller proportion of the population, but so large a population that I will say it again, there will be more Christians worshiping Jesus in China than in the United States. There will be more Christians worshiping Jesus in Africa than in the United States. Beginning of the last century, such a small portion of Christians across Africa, they would have been difficult to number. Now over 50% of the nations of Africa have population identifying as Christian. That's 500 million people identifying as Christian in Africa. That is more than the total population of the United States, worshiping Christ in Africa. Christianity is expanding, is being blessed in such ways that we can hardly fathom its meaning in our time. We talk regularly, those who study missions, that the center of Christianity has moved from the West to the global South and the global East. But it's hard for us really to assess what that means until you actually look at the changing world among us. The largest churches in London are African and Caribbean. The largest churches in Texas, for people who like to brag about being big, <laughs> the largest churches in Texas are usually Hispanic. 
the largest church in the PCA, this denomination, is of Korean heritage. Our world is changing in ways we can barely fathom. The fastest growing church in the world is where? Iran. You are supporting missionaries in what you do this day. There will be missionaries this day training pastors in Iraq. Is it effective at all? If you are under the age of 20 in this country, you need to know something. There have been more Muslims come to Christ in the last 15 years than in the last 1,500 years. I don't throw stats at you just to wow you, but to make clear the truth of an observation by Francis Chan, the author and evangelist, who simply says, we do no greater damage to the gospel than when we look at the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament and we say, that's just ancient hyperbole. The Holy Spirit is alive and well and working. And the calling of any church that would be faithful to the gospel is to say, how do we get in step with the Spirit? How do we identify what the Spirit is doing and get on His train? It's almost cliche that we say that's what we should do. The reality is we still have the question, now how are we going to do that? How do we identify the work of the Holy Spirit and not just cheer it, but become engaged in it? In essence, saying to God as we appeal to the Holy Spirit, we lift our sails to your wind. Blow, Spirit, blow. Take us where you want us to go that we may be part of this great movement of the Spirit in our time also. How do we do that? It's clear if you look at what is happening in this portion of the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit has been blowing very hard. We may not even be able to identify with it because that movement of the Spirit seems so beyond what we experience. Yes, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is raised from the dead. And now that ascended Lord has just said to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And what happens in Jerusalem? A single day, thousands believe. And that wasn't the end of the work of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. You know what happened next. There were those being added to the church daily, such as believed in this crucified and risen Jesus. So many people began to believe that even the Jewish priests began to believe. And that's when the Jewish authorities had enough of that. And they began to hire people who would persecute and crush the church, even with a young monster named Saul who would hunt and imprison and torture and kill those who were Christian. They thought it would drive out the work of the Holy Spirit. Instead, the Christians who were driven from Jerusalem became like seeds on the wind, taking the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. So many of them settled in that 
strange little land bridge that hooks the Middle East and Africa and Asia that we call Asia Minor. That a church was established there at a city called Antioch. The place where they were first called Christians. And the first place that we see Christians sending out missionaries. How did they do that? What, what would characterize such a church? Because we need to know in order to avoid the cynicism that says, well, that was just for them, that's not for us. The, the despondency to say, well, God's just working in other places. He won't work here. That, that he worked at a time that's different from our time. What, what did it look like when the church responded to the work of Holy Spirit so the Spirit began to blow his influence through them? We begin to discern just as we see unity that must mark the church that is going to be used by the Spirit. That unity becomes evident just as you look at the names of the leaders of the church at Antioch. That's really verse 1. Verse 1 is just the, the roster of the leaders of the church at Antioch. First name, no surprise, Barnabas. That's a, a Jewish name. Well, you would expect Jewish people to be driven out of Jerusalem and to Antioch, Barnabas. But those of us who've had a, a little bit of language training, we always love the name Barnabas because it means son of consolation or son of encouragement. We say, man, wouldn't you like to be a Barnabas? There was a great encourager. But it's more than that. This this Barnabas, not only was he an encourager, he had been raised in Cyprus, which was actually a Greek culture, a place of Gentiles. And it's this Jewish man who is an encourager, who's been raised in Greek culture, that the Holy Spirit calls out to go with Paul. Because Paul is supposed to do what? He's supposed to be a minister to the, to the Gentiles. And God seems to have prepared Barnabas especially to be that encourager, that supporter of Paul because Paul was going to go to the Gentiles and Barnabas understood the culture having been raised. It's almost as though God knew that Barnabas was going to be needed. Of course he knew. And Barnabas, this Jewish from a Gentile, Jew from a Gentile culture, is called to minister along with Paul. Sounds so sweet. Didn't stay sweet. Do you remember what happened? The fifth verse of this 13th chapter just begins with this, ends with this little note. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. That's John Mark. That's a cousin of Barnabas. Now, they're going to Cyprus on their first missionary stop. And that becomes a problem for Barnabas and John Mark. Here's the problem. Who do you hate witnessing to the most? Your own family. They remember what you were like in high school. They know the problems. They know the weakness. They know, the, and we hate going to our own families. 
Barnabas is willing to go with Paul to Cyprus, even though he knows he's going to his own hometown, to his own people who know him. But John Mark said, no way. And he abandoned Paul and Barnabas on this first missionary journey. There's going to be another missionary journey later on. Barnabas and Paul are going to be asked again to go minister. And Barnabas says, I got an idea. Let's take John Mark with us again. And what does Paul say? No way. He abandoned us. And it became a falling out between Paul and Barnabas that would last for years until the Holy Spirit put them back together. It sounds so awful until you recognize who this John Mark is. If we just went this far into the story, we would say John Mark is the coward of Cyprus. He's the one who would not go to witness to the uttermost parts of it. He's the one who did not help Paul and Barnabas when they needed him. But he is someone else. Whenever you open your Bibles and you just go to the New Testament and you start, Matthew, Mark, Luke, what, who? Mark. Who wrote the Gospel of Mark? The coward of Cyprus, John Mark. It's gospel witness just in our Bibles being open that God was willing to restore, to use, to claim one who had sinned so badly, stumbled so awfully, and still say, but you are mine. And by the blood of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, I will use you again. And the gospel of Mark is the great witness to the work of the gospel, even in our having it in our Bibles. That's John Mark who wrote that, the coward of Cyprus, who is the witness to the gospel. He's not the only one. Next on the roster in verse 1 is Simeon or Simon. That's a Jewish name. But we read this else. He has a Greek surname or nickname Simeon meaning black Simon or Simeon the black was on the leadership council why is that important it's almost certain that he is called Simon the black because his skin is black and you don't have a Jewish name and black skin unless you have intermarried in some way that most Jews would not appreciate how did Simeon the black get in the leadership roster. Just a few people would know at this point that years ago, centuries before, that King Asa of Israel, trying to establish a way for the boundaries of Israel to expand in order to honor the prophecies to David that his kingdom would be universal. Asa actually took the armies of Israel down into North Africa and established a Jewish colony in an area called Cyrene, where Jewish black believers existed to the time of Jesus. Simon of North Africa, the area called what? Cyrene. John Stott says, almost without question, this is Simon of Cyrene. What do you remember about Simon of Cyrene? Do you remember that as Jesus is walking, carrying his cross, 
to Golgotha. He stumbles under the loss of blood and the weight of the cross. And the Roman soldier just grab a man out of the crowd and say, you carry the cross. And the name of the man grabbed out of the crowd to carry the cross that would crucify our Lord. The name of that man was Simon of Cyrene. And here he is, the one who carried the instrument of torture and death of our Savior. And he is on the leadership council of the church at Antioch that's going to be sending out missionaries. Is there any grace there? Any gospel there? Yes, even for such as these, there is forgiveness and restoration and the ministry of the gospel. To be received, how they must have struggled. You carried his cross? How dare you come into this church, much less be a leader? But here he's received by the goodness and the grace of the gospel. And it doesn't get any easier. Also on the list is Lucius of Cyrene. Now there is a Roman name. A man of the oppressing nation. A man who comes from those whose force was actually used to persecute and drive not just these Christians out of Jerusalem but whose force was used to crucify their Savior. Lucius, a Roman from Africa, from Cyrene. And when you begin to understand, it almost gives you goosebumps to recognize in this very first church where they are called Christians, the very first church where they would send out missionaries, there is this cadre of African believers that are in the leadership for the work of the gospel that is going to spread across the world as though God were preparing so far ahead of time to say, I want you to know from every nation, language, people, I will have my own. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. But it's not just geographical. The bigotries and the boundaries that have to be crossed. Look at who's next on the list. Manan. And depending on your translation, it will say something like this. A member of the court. Or even a lifelong friend. Some of your translations will even say a foster brother of Herod. The Greek just says brought up with. Here is Manan brought up with Herod. Now, all of us get confused. What Herod are we talking about? There's so many Herods. What Herod is this? His father was the one to whom the wise men went. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? And what did this Herod's father say? Well, why don't you find him? Come back and tell me where he is that I may worship him. But when the wise men did not return, what did that Herod do? He murdered all the infants of Bethlehem. And this Herod, this Herod has blood on his hands too. You may remember when this Herod married his brother's wife, he came under the preaching of John the Baptist. How dare you, as a Jewish king, be involved in this incestuous marriage? And Herod got so upset with the preaching of John the Baptist. Do you remember? He had him arrested. And then one night, when this Herod's daughter got him excited with an erotic dance, what did this Herod do? He said to his daughter, anything you want, 
Up to half the kingdom, I'll give it to you. And what did she want? The head of John the Baptist. And this Herod gave it to her. He also gave Jesus to Pilate. This Herod. This Herod is the one who had James, the brother of John, killed. This Herod is the one who imprisoned Peter. And this Herod has a friend named Menaean who is raised with him. And if I know anything about human relationships, it is the friend of my enemy is my enemy. I mean, you just imagine what it would mean for you to be a Christian in Antioch. You've been driven out of Jerusalem. You've lost your home, your employment, your family, your security. Now you're living in a foreign nation and you get to that church service and there is Menahem. And he's not just attending. He's a leader. Can you imagine the rage? Listen, I can worship with a Jew who's got Gentile background. I can worship with a Jew who's got African blood. I can even worship with a Roman who's African. But not Manaean. That is a bridge too far. Don't you ask me to do it. Lord, don't you ask me to do this. Not receive this man. And if you think that's a trial, you have let yet to consider the last name on the list. It just goes by so fast. Menaean, foster brother of Herod. And, who? And Saul. Imprisoned my family. Tortured my wife. Drove us from our town. And now we walk in the doors. And now is he a leader? We're talking about supporting him? What would it be like? If you'd been in Afghanistan, if you'd watched your family members die at the airport, and then you get to the States, and you walk in the doors of a church, and one of the Taliban generals is a leader being supported by the church, would you stay? Or would you turn on your heel and walk away? What does it mean to yield to the work of the Holy Spirit? But to say, God, if that's who you want here, if that's who I need to welcome, those are the people that are the object of your grace, then they are the object of my affection, my support. I will be behind the work of the Holy Spirit. As much humility as it may require of me for the unity of the Spirit that he may show himself strong among the peoples of the earth, we will be for this work. Do you remember how it's expressed in Ephesians chapter 3? There we are told that the manifold witness of God is on display in the church, even to the hosts of the authorities and the powers of heaven. Those, those are the demonic authorities with the angels. And we are told that the manifold witness of God, which for Paul is the exact same term as the New Testament translators would have used to describe the multicolored coat of Joseph. Remember that? 
The manifold, the multicolored wisdom of God is on display in the church. So much so that the host of heaven in awe say, my, what kind of a God is that? If he can get those people together, then this gospel must be real. What does God require of us? But that we bow before the work of the Holy Spirit and we will say we will unify with those different from us. We will put aside our own bigotries and antipathies. That we will cross all boundaries to be the church of Jesus Christ from all nations, of all peoples, of all backgrounds, even those who have sinned against us. That the gospel might be on display. How does that happen? (coughs) It happens when we gather for glorifying worship. We almost repassed it too fast. Verse 2. While (coughs) they were worshiping the Lord. Now, just remember, they've been driven from home and land and career and background, and they get to a new place, and what is the priority? We still worship together. In an era of COVID when it's so easy to worship apart, if at all. I can stay in my pajamas, I can watch the stream, I can, yeah, better than nothing, I agree. But what is the witness to the world? The witness to the world is where God's people are not going to their separate corners, but come together in the glorifying worship of God as difficult as it may be for them. They continue that witness. They do it with consistent devotion that is corporate to make the witness of Christ plain, not just to the heavenly authorities, but to the nations around us and the neighborhoods around us and our own children. This gospel is real. Look what it's doing among us. I will not always contend that it is easy. The last church I pastored that Ryan was nice to mention, I got a letter from a college student in our last couple of years there. She wrote this. Dear Dr. Chapel, I have been compelled to write to you about something I feel very strongly about. I've moved away from home to attend my university. With this move, I've had to seek a new church. And the church I've been attending has made a huge effort to reach out to all kinds of people in the community. The worship consists of hymns, contemporary songs, even in different languages, all within the same service. I felt motivated by the Holy Spirit to write you, and any pastor knows this is not going to go well now. I felt motivated by the Holy Spirit to write you about this because I think with all The diversity that we have at Grace, which means not very much. If we started singing and worshiping the same way, then no one would feel out of place and our differences would be erased. Scripture would begin to bind us as it's read in different languages as well as our own. I know it would be hard. And inside I'm going, well, you can say that again. 
The people in the church told me how hard a transition it was. But it stretched people. They grew out of their comfort zones. And in the end, everyone benefited. I know that in our church, we've already incorporated English as a second language classes. But I feel like our church could do more to embrace other people. Now, if you're a pastor and you get that kind of a letter from a college student, you got a couple of choices. One is you can think inside, how dare she? We're doing the best we can. Or you can think, how blessed are we that a child of this church actually believes what we taught her, that the gospel is for all, every nation, language, people. That's who the gospel is for. And we'll live that way and we'll believe that way and we'll worship that way because that is the witness to the nations that begins in the church that calls itself Christian. How does that happen? Because it's not natural, I will tell you. Verse 2 says, they were worshiping together, but then what else? Fasting. They were worshiping the Lord and fasting when the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Verse 3, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them. Now, what does that mean? I mean listen, you can worship corporately, you can pray corporately, but every man fasts alone. They were fasting. You know, I was raised in a tradition that everybody prays. You know, that's just, everybody prays. But it's the really holy people that fast. Why is that? Because it's hard. And, and because you get so confused about what you're trying to do. I mean, I was taught that the reason that you fast is so that you can focus on the Lord. The trouble was, whenever I fasted, I could only focus on McDonald's. You know, I'm so hungry. And it felt like failure. But we have to think what's actually happening. What, what happens when you pray? What is prayer? Prayer is automatically the confession of our inadequacy. Why am I praying to the Lord? Because in my strength and my ability, I cannot do what is needed. Prayer is the confession of my weakness and the necessity of the Lord's strength. Do you recognize fasting is the physical manifestation of that? I used to feel so guilty for being hungry. What if, what if I recognized my hunger was actually part of my worship? That, that through my hunger I'm confessing it's not in my strength. It's not in my ability. But in my dependence, my leaning, my, my actual dependence upon God. That I believe whatever I'm asking is going to be carried out. Lord, not by us, not by our strength, not by our wisdom, but by your might will this be done. And my hunger is my deprivation, not just to focus on God, it's my focus on my weakness, so that I say only by God will this be accomplished. It's that, that confession that is so needed for what God will actually call us to do. Because it will be beyond all of us. These people who are worshiping together, they are sending out those whose mission must be exceedingly courageous. You know this account of Paul and Barnabas 
going out, has them first going to an easy place, right? The synagogues of Cyprus where they're familiar. That's hard in itself, witnessing to familiar people. Holidays are coming up, and so you know how hard it is. How do you speak with tact and love and still say what has to be said to those you love, but also those who know you? That's part of the courage, speaking to those who know you. But there's also courage before enemies. This strange account. There's this man who has the name Jesus in his name. Who is nonetheless using magic to seduce people away from the faith. It's not just speaking to family that's being called for. It's speaking to enemies. Those who will not receive the word kindly. Those who will believe because you claim that you believe in the truth of Scripture that you're a bigot or an idiot. To speak to them too. Are there enemies in our culture? Oh, we could list the evangelical list. There are academics who will say that gender is fluid. There are friends who say that same-sex relationships are to be celebrated. There are family members who say that marriage is optional for sexual intimacy, that divorce is inevitable, that life begins and ends when it's convenient for us, that political animosity is acceptable. As long as they said it about you first, you can do it back. There were those who will say racial inequities are tolerable as long as it doesn't touch you. There are those who will say that exploiting and using sexually explicit materials with real people doesn't really matter as long as you're not caught. Opposing any one of those things will make you an enemy in this culture. But we speak with courage because the Holy Spirit uses the courage of those who speak for him. He did. He is. He will. There are Christians now in Iran, in Iraq, in China that you know are speaking with courage. And the gospel is flourishing in the most unlikely places because they are totally dependent on the Spirit and not anything human that would be the basis of the faith spreading. Think how it happens. Paul even speaks to power. The proconsul who sees what God is doing and believes. A Roman governor believes. Who would have thought? The Holy Spirit. That's what happens. Can it happen again? I had to think when a year or so ago I was asked to be the, the speaker at the Hong Kong Bible Conference which annually draws about a quarter million people. Got a letter from the leaders in the wake of COVID. Dr. Chapel, the virus is now widespreading in China, causing tens of thousands to need treatment. In Hong Kong, public activities are suspended. Schools closed. Church meetings closed. Churches being abandoned. 
You are the scheduled speaker for this convention. We cannot have it now. But we invite you to write a short message to the saints here that we may be comforted, encouraged, and inspired. And inside I'm thinking, wait a second, you are the courageous people. You are the ones living for Christ in the hard place. How can I possibly, what right do I have to try to inspire you? I, I don't have a right to do that. All I knew to do was to remind them of their own Holy Spirit. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, as I read of the challenges you now face in China, I write to tell you the eyes of the worldwide church are upon you. The eyes of the angels. But most of all, the eyes of King Jesus. Even when we do not know how to pray, we know that the Holy Spirit intercedes for you with groanings too deep to utter according to the will of God, so that all things will be worked together for you. good. These temporary afflictions are working for you an eternal weight of glory that cannot be denied. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by Christ, to this you are called, because he has chosen you for this time. And not them only, brothers and sisters, but we too are chosen for this time. It is our obligation to remember that our opposition are open doors to the Spirit. Our obstacles are actually His opportunities, our difficulties, His doorways. We lift our sails to the wind by the means He has given us, and we say, blow, Spirit, blow. We will do as you call. Do as you ask. Respond as you call. And believe you will then shake the nations and call your people from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and from the uttermost parts of the earth. Blow, Spirit, blow. We lift our sails to you now. Heavenly Father, would you so use these people in this church to so believe in the reality of the gospel that by their witness, by their generosity, by their love for you, their witness would go out in this community to family, to enemies, to power, so that the world might know of the Jesus who healed us, and calls us now that the world might know his grace. So use us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.